Welcome to the sermon podcast of Southside Baptist Church, a body of Christ located in beautiful Norman Park, Georgia. We are so glad you chose to listen in today. It's our prayer you would find the message of Jesus Christ compelling and uplifting, and that your life would be changing continually from hearing the Word of God. If you would like more information about our church or would like more digital content, please feel free to check us out on the web at southsidenp.org. And now for today's message. Before we get started, uh, I would like to take a moment and recognize our veterans. So if you are a veteran, uh, if you would, please stand. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, brother. You can be seated. We appreciate your service. We appreciate what you've done uh, for us uh, in the service of our country and the freedoms that we certainly do uh, enjoy. And if you're like me, we certainly do take for granted. Um, which we need to do a better job there. But uh, thank you for your service. Joshua, Joshua chapter 11. I'm going to continue with our study in the book of Joshua. Uh, we may transition a bit in the coming weeks. I haven't, I'm not sure about that. We'll see where God leads uh, there. But uh, this morning we'll be back in Joshua, Joshua chapter 11, uh, verses 1 through 23. Title this morning is this, The Beat Goes On. The Beat Goes On, The Final Conquest. The Final uh, Conquest. I'm going to be reading from verses 1 through uh, 9 this morning. So if you would stand as we honor the reading of God's Word uh, this morning. The Bible says this, When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to uh, Jabab, Jobab, a king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaf, and to the kings who were in the north northern hill country, and in the Arba, south of Chinnereth, and in the lowlands, and in the Naphoth door on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, and Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon, in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde, in number like the sand that is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. Verse 5, And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Miram to fight against Israel. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Merom and fell upon them. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Miseroth Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. Verse 9, And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him, he hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. Father God, we come to you thanking you again for this opportunity to honor our veterans, those that have served our country, Father, but more importantly to honor you. 
And Father, I pray that we serve you, that we are your servants, Lord, that we seek your face. Father, And we uh, see a, another episode here in the life of Joshua and the life of the Israelites, Father, where you come through once again and you honor your promises. You're faithful to the people of God. But Lord, but the people of God must go and fight for what you've given them. And Father, I pray as we see this final conquest, Lord, that we understand that there are difficulties ahead of us and there are difficulties out there, but you are and you will deliver. Father, we love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. One thing that you and I can probably say with some certainty is this. There can be no true peace or no true rest until the final victory region during World War II. General MacArthur, the commander-in-chief of the Allied forces in the Pacific region during World War II, he recognized this very thing. Forced to withdraw from the Philippines because of the advance of the Japanese army, MacArthur made a promise to the people of the Philistines that... Or Philippians, <laughs> the Philippines, that he would return and liberate their country. Multiple fierce battles followed until finally the Japanese army was forced to retreat. At that time, the Defense Department of the United States wanted to overlook the islands of the Philippines and liberate them at a later time. MacArthur, however, would keep his word. The Allied forces liberated the uh, the Philippines... And then turned their sights toward Japan. MacArthur did not allow the enemy hold on any territory. MacArthur understood. He understood that peace and rest would only come when that final conquest was complete. Now, we're not at war against the forces of Japan like General MacArthur was and the Allied forces were in World War II. The war in battle with the forces of evil. You and I are in battle with Satan. We're in battle with not only Satan, but his band of demonics. And peace and rest will come on that glorious day in the future when Christ returns to take His church to heaven. That's when perfect peace will come. That's when perfect rest will come. But in the meantime, in the meantime, you and I have to battle. You and I have to walk through life with the forces of evil beating down on us from this way and that. Satan knows that he's already lost. That's why he battles so hard and so uh, so ferociously. Christ has defeated Satan on the cross. Until that time, that glorious appearing, we must continue to stand firm, church, and we must continue to be faithful in the battle. So in chapters 6 through 10... As we walk through the book of Joshua, we've seen that central campaign of the Israelites under the leadership of Joshua. They've they've destroyed Jericho. They've destroyed Ai. The alliances of the southern kingdom have come against Joshua and the Israelites, and they've destroyed them. They've, They've taken those regions of the promised land. In chapter 11, however... Joshua gives another account. We see another account of this final conquest. We see the northern kingdoms, northern Canaan is going to come against the people of Israelites. And as they continue to move through the promised land, they're going to continue to conquer inhabitants of the promised land. There's going to be further battles we're going to see, but this is going to be that final battle, that, that, that culmination battle, if you will, where Joshua and the Israelites have taken not only the southern kingdom, 
of the promised land, but also the northern kingdom as well. And for the Israelites, the beat would go on. They continue their march into the promised land. And as they do, the current current inhabitants, as you might imagine, they take offense. They take offense to the people of God moving in on their territory. Imagine that, church. In the previous battles, the Israelites faced difficulties. They faced hardships. The battle would be difficult. It would be different this time, however. The battle would be over a a much longer period of time, as we will see. You know, at Jericho and Ai, basically the Israelites, they took the offensive. They took the offensive. However, in this final conquest, the inhabitants of, of the northern territories would go on the offensive. And Joshua and them would have to defend themselves against these people as well. But even in that... And here's the point this morning. Joshua continued to show complete trust and obedience. Complete trust and obedience in the Lord. And for it was the Lord that Joshua knew this who would provide that final victory. So listen, Christians, for us today, we can show complete trust and obedience in the Lord because we know that God has already provided the victory. The victory has already been done through Christ on that cross. We just need to be faithful and obedient and trust in the Lord. So we're going to walk through this passage this morning basically like a story, if you will. We're going to see it in four different scenes. So scene number one, if you've got your outline, you can follow along. We're going to see the combatants are identified. The combatants are identified. Look at verses 1 through 5. When Jabin, king of Hazor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Maiden, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Akshaph, and to the kings who were in the north northern hill country, and in the Arba, south of Kinneroth, and in the lowland, and in the Naphoth door on the west. To the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites in the hill country, and the Hivites under Hermon in the land of Mizpah. And they came out with all their troops... A great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore with very many horses and chariots. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. We see these kings gather. We see all these forces gather to come against the people of God. You know, you, you see this, and it's been uh, the last several weeks we've seen a similar scenario, if you will. In, verse, in chapter 9, we saw this, and in chapter 10, we saw this. But this is different. This battle is going to be different. The players are going to be different. It's going to be the Canaanites and all those other things, but it's going to be different. There's going to be a, multiple, a multitude of differences, and that's what I want to point out this morning. Because these differences show that the battle is beginning to escalate. Okay. The opposition is becoming more angry, more eager to take out the people of God. There's more contempt, there's more bitterness, there's more evilness. And if you look at our society and our culture today, you see the very same thing. We're beginning to face more evil. We're getting to face more bitterness and more contempt for the people of God and anything of God, anything of religion, anything of the church or, or any of those things. 
You know, you would think instead of casting themselves on the mercies of God, you would think that these that that's what the, these forces of, uh, of evil will call them today. These combatants would have done. They just said, oh, Lord, we, we, we apologize. We know that you're you're, you're going to take us. We know that that we're in trouble here. But they didn't do that. They didn't fall on the mercy of the Israelites. They didn't fall on the mercy of God. No, what they did is they gathered themselves together with Jabin, the king of Hazor, in the lead. And they're going to go to battle before the Israelites. They're going to go to battle against the Israelites. So we need to understand the enemy here. Although these combatants had gathered to battle against the people of God, in reality, they weren't battling against the people of God. They were battling against God himself. And so when we face those trials, when we face those situations, it's not us that the forces of evil are, are combating. It's, the, it's, it's God himself. All right? It's God himself. Okay? So we need to take some things into consideration here as we walk through the, these first five verses. I want to show you uh, several things. First, Jabin there. The king of Hazor, he was in the line of that Adonai Zedek we saw in chapter 10. This could have been a common name for the kings in that area, but it could have been an individual as well. But what we know about Hazor, Hazor was like Gibeon. Hazor was a great city. Hazor was an important city. It was a central city in that area. So it would have been, it seems realistic. It seems that that Jabin would have been the one to gather the forces. All these other surrounding forces would have come to Jabin and to help Jabin because Jabin had the bigger kingdom. He had the more important kingdom. Notice the second thing. The combatants included more kings and kingdoms than the previous battles. This gathered army, it included all the Canaanites. It included all the Canaanites in the uh, utmost western and northern territories. It was all this group of people. It wasn't just a few kings and a few kingdoms. It was the entire northern area and the western area that had come against the people of God. And we'll see that in just a moment. Notice the troop size. Verse 4, it says, And they came out with all their troops. It says, A great horde in number like the sand that is on the seashore. Well, that's a hyperbole. It's not necessarily true. But notice this great horde, the Bible says, all their troops, this great horde. Some scholars believe that the historians suggest that that the Northern Alliance consisted of 300,000 foot soldiers. 300,000 foot soldiers that were coming against the people of God. Now, that's just the foot soldiers. That's just the infantry, if you will, that were going to be involved in this battle. And they would have been a far superior Infantry in relation to the manpower of the Israelites. But a fourth thing you're going to notice, not only did they have the manpower, not only was it a great horde of people, they also had the advanced weaponry. The Bible says they also had horses and chariots. Most believe that these horses, they had 100,000 men or 100,000 in their cavalry. So you had 300,000 foot soldiers, 300,000 infantry, and 100,000 in their, on their cavalry who were on horses. Certainly would have been more formidable of an opponent. But not only that, but they had chariots. They believed that there was 20,000 chariots involved in this battle as well. 
300,000 infantry, 100,000 cavalry, 20,000 chariots. The chariot was an ultimate war machine. It was constructed of iron. And it had these things called sifts on the, uh, on the, on the, on the wheels. And they were iron curved blades attached to poles. Into the wheels of the chariots. And what these chariot drivers would do is they would drive through the opposing infantry. And those things on the wheels would just cut them to shreds as they went through there. So you can see that they were more formidable of an opponent. You can see how this advanced, but you can see how this final conquest was developing. But not only that, there was an offensive attack. It was an offensive attack. In verse 5, And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of uh, Miram to fight against Israel. They went on the offensive. Remember Jericho and Ai, the Israelites were on the offensive. The Israelites went in and attacked Jericho and attacked Ai. But here you have this group of combatants, all these, these mass of, of, of men, all these mass of foot soldiers, all this mass of cavalry, and all these chariots have gone on the offensive against the people of God. Now from a human perspective, you and I would look, we would look at that and we would say, man, this is impossible. This is impossible. We're completely outnumbered. Think of the mass of humanity here. Think of the horses and the chariots. And so I can imagine the people of Israel, even Joshua's people, maybe they were a little bit nervous. Maybe they were a little bit scared. Maybe they'd seen this situation as hopeless. But may I remind you, in 2 Kings chapter 6, the king of Syria, he sent a great army with horses and chariots by night to Dothan, surrounding the city in hopes of seizing Elisha. Do you remember what happened? The servant of Elisha, when he rose early the next morning, what did he say? He went out and saw all those massive people, all those, those horses and chariots. And he says this, Alas, my master, what shall we do? What shall we do? What did Elisha say? He said, Do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Elisha was speaking of the forces that are divine, the forces that his servant couldn't see. Elisha had complete trust in the Lord. Colossians 1.21 tells us this, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. That's who's against us. Those are the combatants who are against the people of God, and they've gathered against the people of God. Satan and his forces are evil. And they're on the offensive against the people of God. They are powerful. They are well supplied in their weaponry and their manpower. And they will stop at nothing to bring you and I to ruin. They'll stop at nothing. They'll stop at nothing. And as difficult and as overwhelming as it might seem from a human perspective, what we have to understand, it is nothing more than a speck in the vast ocean to Almighty God, regardless of how many forces they have, regardless of what they do, regardless of their weaponry. So we see the combatants, and they've assembled. They're ready for war. They're ready for battle. But notice the second thing in scene number two. The divine assistance is assured. Look at verse 6. And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be 
afraid. Do not be afraid. Now listen, if I was to come to you and you saw all this going on, and I was to come to you and say, hey, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Those might just be words coming out of my mouth. But this was God speaking to Joshua. And may I add that this is God telling the people at Southside Baptist Church and the Christians in 2021 that we don't need to be afraid. There is nothing for us to be afraid of. Nothing. He says, do not be afraid. For tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them. Notice what he says, all of them. He just doesn't say some. He says all slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Consider two things out of this one verse here. Consider the promise of God. The first part of verse 6. He says, do not fear. What God is telling Joshua, listen, there's no need for you to be fearful of man. There's no need for you to be fearful of those chariots. There's no need for you to be fearful of those horses. Nothing, man nor weaponry, you need to be fearful of, Joshua. Deuteronomy 17, 16 speaks of the law concerning the kings of Israel. When God gave the law to the kings, he said this, Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people of it, uh, to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. God forbid the people of Israel to get a cavalry together. God forbid the people of Israel to gather a group, a bunch of horses so they could go to battle. Why do you think that was? Because God didn't want them trusting in horses. God didn't want them trusting in a cavalry. Just like God doesn't want us trusting in government. God doesn't want us trusting in our family and our friends. God wanted the people of Israel to trust in him. To trust in him. Because he was the only one that was that would give the assurance of victory. And that's the same thing with us. When we go to battle with the forces of evil, with the forces of Satan, regardless of how armed we think we are, we're no match for the forces of evil. We are no match without God. The promise of God was that he would be the one to give this massive over uh, this massive army over to the Israelites. Notice what he says. I, who's I there? It's God. Will give over all of them, not just all of them. He'll give over all of them slain. What does a slain individual do? Nothing. Nothing. Okay. God would give them over to the people of Israel slain. But not, not only that. Notice what God, God gives Joshua a precept here as well, a command, if you will. Something Joshua has to do. The second part of that verse, he tells Joshua, you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Joshua had a role to play in this. God wasn't just going to let Joshua sit back and just reap the benefits of, of God going in there and providing this, this, this massive victory. Joshua would render the enemy's weaponry useless. He would hamstring their horses. He would just cut the tendons of the horse's legs, which would leave them unfit for military service. He would burn their chariots. 
But what that tells me, the implication there is that God would put those horses and those chariots in a place where Joshua could do just that. But Joshua had to do what? He had to do it. He had to do what God told him to do. But he had the assurance that God gave him the promises. He had the assurance that God was on his side. He had the assurance that God would fight his battle for him. So he had nothing to worry about. But he didn't get to set back and do nothing. And neither do we. We are commanded to be active members in the army of the Lord. We just can't sit back and say, okay, God, Satan's beating me. Okay, God, we're going to get Satan today. Okay, God, this is it. I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to let you do all the work. No. God is with us and he promises to be with us. And he wants us to be faithful and obedient to him going forth in this cruel and taking the battles, taking what may come, taking the battles that lie ahead of us. We have got a role to play in this and God wants us to be obedient just like Joshua was obedient. But notice what God did first though. He gave the promise first, didn't he? He promised Joshua, listen, you don't need to be afraid, man. I've got this taken care of. Again, it wasn't the pastor telling Joshua this. It was God himself (laughs) telling Joshua this. Again, from a human perspective, think about David. David was a complete underdog when he faced that giant Goliath. Goliath had superior weaponry. Goliath was massive in size. His skill as a warrior was just just unprecedented. The man had killed thousands and thousands of people, I would imagine. David's size was small. David's weaponry was inferior, a sling and five smooth stones. But what David had that Goliath didn't have was God. That's what David had. And God provided assurance of victory with one sling and a smooth stone. 1 Samuel seventeen thirty seven. When confronted with Goliath, David said this, The Lord... Who delivered me from the lion and from the paw of the bear would deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. Do you have that confidence today, church? Do you have that confidence? Do you have the confidence that the Lord who delivered all of this, you can read through Scripture over and over and over again and see the victories of God, the victories that God provided the people of God. Ultimately, that victory over death through Jesus Christ on that cross. The battles we will fight will be difficult, not might, but will. We can rest in the promises that God will deliver us from our enemies and in, in that Only through His divine assistance, the power of God, the presence of God, can we overcome the forces of our enemies. It was only through God that Joshua and the people of Israel would have been able to overcome the the, the people that that were coming against them. Remember Ai? The problems they had at Ai? It's because they didn't go to God. They didn't trust God. They didn't follow God. So the combatants, they've all gathered. God has promised 
The enemy, well, he's assured Joshua. Scene number three is this. The enemy is vanquished. The enemy is vanquished. Look at verses 7 through 9. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against him by the waters at Miram and fell upon them. Notice what 8 says. And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel who struck them and chased them as far as Great Sidon and Miseroth Maim and east as far as the valley of Mizpah. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord had said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. God did exactly what God said he would do. He delivered all those men, that 300,000, that great horde, those horses and those chariots. He delivered those into the hands of the people of Israel. They overwhelmed them. I don't know how many men Joshua had. I don't know how many forces. I don't know how big his force was. But whatever size that that force was, they overwhelmed that group of people. They overwhelmed that group of people. May I remind you that God can do great things with willing participants. Those of us who are willing to just say, Lord, you can use me. Whatever you want to do, use me. Use me, Lord. God quickly fulfilled this promise. The Lord gave the enemies. He gave them into the hands of the people of Israel. They chased them. They slaughtered them. The Bible says none was left. It goes right back to verse 6 when God said, I will give all of them slain to Israel. Joshua fulfilled his commitment to the, to the Lord as well. He hamstrung their horses. He, he put their horses out of commission. He burned their chariots. But he goes on. He turns to the ringleader of this whole thing. He turns to Hazor. Verse 10, and Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hazor and struck its king. Hazor was the head of that snake. Hazor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. Hazor was the head of that snake. Hazor was the head of that snake and Joshua took care of the head. He chopped it off. He chopped it off. He begun the war. Hazor did. Gathering all those other groups together. His punishment was severe. His punishment was complete. Hazor was destroyed. His kingdom was destroyed. His city was burned. The city was burned with fire. Matthew 18, 6, Jesus said this, But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin... It would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. He had caused all this. Jabin had caused all this. Hazor had caused all of this. It brought all the forces of evil against the people of God. And they suffered. They paid for it. Hazor was burned, suffered complete destruction. Verse 12, and all the cities and those kings and all the kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. 13. But none of the cities that stood on the mounds did Israel burn, except Hazor alone, that Joshua burned. And all the spoil of that cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every man they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them, and they did, did not leave any who breathed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses' his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua 
did. Notice the obedience there. The Lord gave the command to Moses. Moses gave the command to Joshua. Joshua did exactly what he was told. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. Hazor was destroyed. All those kings were destroyed. They were captured. They were struck with the edge of the sword. They were destroyed. They were devoted to destruction. Some of the cities were not burned, however. Some of the cities may have been some of those cities that they were kind of neutral in the war. They didn't necessarily go to on the offensive against the people of God. And so God gave them grace. God spared those cities. The people and the inhabitants were killed. But the cities weren't burned. The cities weren't destroyed. Maybe Joshua would use those later to rebuild. The spoils were all taken by the Israelites. They plundered all the, the spoils and they brought all those spoils back and were as judgment left to, to their pride, left to their obstinance and left to their enmity of their hearts and to the power of Satan. All restraints being withdrawn while the dispensations of providence tended to drive them to despair. That was all about God. God drove them to despair. They brought on themselves the vengeance that justly merited of which the Israelites were to be executioners by the command the Lord gave to Moses. They brought all this upon themselves by going against the people of God, ultimately being against God himself. So again, when we think of our culture, when we think of our society, when we think of how the world is just against God and everything about God, this should give us hope. It should give us hope knowing that anybody that goes against God is ultimately going to pay for that disobedience. They're going to pay for it. But not only that, but Jesus says, listen, if you call yourself a Christian and you cause another one to sin, if you cause someone to go by the way, if you cause somebody to be disobedient, it'd be better to have a millstone fastened around your neck. And thrown and drowned in the depths of the sea than to face the judgment of God. We don't want to face the judgment of God. Hazor faced the judgment of God. All these kings and all these peoples faced the judgment of God. Because of their disobedience. Because they went uh, against uh, the people of God. Notice verse 16. It says, so Joshua took all that the Lord, uh, all all of the land, the hill country and all the Negev. In the land of Goshen, in the lowland of the Arba, in the hill country of Israel, and its lowland, from Mount Halak, which rises towards Seir, as far as Baal Gad, in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. And he captured all the kings and struck them and put them to death. It was a complete takeover from the people of God. Complete destruction. Verse 18, Joshua made war a long time with all these kings. Notice what that verse says. Sometimes we skim over that verse, verse, but that verse is important. Most scholars believe that this was six to seven years that Joshua fought this battle in the northern territory. The other battles of Ai and Jericho and the other conquerings happened fairly quickly, most believe, but this battle took seven years. Why do you say that? Well, I say that because it took Joshua being faithful for seven whole years. 
Joshua followed this thing, waiting for that of God for seven full years, waiting for God to do this thing, waiting for that complete destruction, waiting for God to fulfill his promises. We need to be like Joshua was. We need to wait patiently on the Lord. Well, we want our enemies, man, when we have people come against us, we want them to be vanquished immediately. We want God to immediately call down fire from heaven and burn them up. When the reality is we may have to live with that for time after time and year after year after year. But you know what? If we're faithful, you know what that does to us? It just it just proves our faithfulness to the Lord. It grows us spiritually. In those moments of trials, in those moments of sufferings. God may not do that. He didn't do it here. It took seven years for Joshua to, to complete this uh, the, this destruction. But we got to remain firm in the Lord. And Joshua had to do the same thing. we got to be continued uh, to be obedient to God. And verse 20 says this. For it was the Lord's doing... To harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle. In order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy. But be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. Every bit of this was God's doing. God did it all. God prepared it all. God hardened the hearts. Remember Pharaoh? God did the same thing to Pharaoh. But in the midst of all of that, God did all of this. God would get the glory for it all. Because it's only through God that this battle could be won. We've seen that already. He hardened the heart of these kings. He hardened their hearts. You know, remember, heart is the, the, the heart is, is essential for salvation. The more we deny Jesus Christ, the more we set aside salvation, the harder our hearts become. And there's a point, church, that our hearts become so hard that we're not going to accept Christ as personal Lord and Savior. Scripture tells us that. There are those whose hearts will become hard because of their constant denial of Jesus Christ as personal Lord and Savior over and over and over and over again. And they won't accept Jesus as personal Lord and Savior. The only way that that hardened heart can be overcome is through Christ. Through calling out on Jesus, calling out to Christ. A thousand years it ended, save our hearts. Revelations 27 through 9 says, And when a thousand years it ended, Satan will be released from prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at all four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophets were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Let me assure you that our ultimate enemy will be destroyed. He will be vanquished in the end. We just need to be faithful. All he wants to do is kill, steal, and destroy. We've got to continue in that battle. We've got to be faithful in that battle, knowing that one day our enemy will be vanquished and we will be free of that enemy. 
One final thing. Scene number four this morning. A rest is given. A rest is given. Look at verse 23. So Joshua took the whole land. According to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel. According to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. Had rest from war. Here's the climax. The climax of this battle. The final climax. It's the grand finale, if you will. This must have certainly been a welcome time for the people of Israel. Can you imagine? It had all these battles. They'd been through war. This certainly was a bloody war. We I mean, just think about the mass of humanity that had been killed. 300,000 troops. 100,000 of the, oh, the, the, the cavalry. 20,000 chariots. But this was a time to lay down that their implements of war. This was a time to establish cities. This was a time for Joshua and the people to raise families and enjoy what the Lord had given them as they went into those allotted lands that God had already given them. Rest there. It means to be quiet. It means to be undisturbed. The land was at rest and the people of God were at rest. As Christians, we should long for the day of that glorious rest. That you and I will one day have. The moment that Jesus Christ comes back for his church. We're ushered into heaven to be with him and live with him in eternity. That inheritance that we've been promised. That imperishable. Long for that day as well. That kept in heaven for us. We long for that day. I hope you long for that day as well. That ultimate rest. No longer will we, will we have the issues of sin. No longer will we have the issues of, of Satan. No longer will we have the issues of those burdens that you and I face today. We'll have that ultimate rest. That ultimate rest. Now we'll come back with Christ. When He comes back at His second coming after the, uh, the uh, tribulation, He establishes kingdom. We'll come back, but we'll come back on white horses. We'll come back as, as the ones who will help him to establish his reign there on earth. But we'll have that ultimate rest. Matthew 11, 28-30 says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. As Jesus says, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Christ sustains us, church. Christ pleads for us. Christ fights on our behalf. Satan may very well be permitted to assault the people of God. He is permitted to assault the people of God. But regardless of the tenacity of his assaults, we can patiently endure. Because we are encouraged. We're encouraged by that hope. What hope? That hope that we have the glorious day when we have rest from our sins. We have rest from the difficulties and from the assaults of this world. That's what we have hope in. And so we can rest. That rest is going to be given. So my question is this morning is this as we close. Are you ready for the glorious day? Are you ready for the glorious day? Are you ready for Christ to return? Well, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not ready for Christ. 
you're not ready for his return. Because at his return, you're going to be left one thing to go through this tribulation time. But if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you should be ready. But we need to be aware of of several things. The combatants are everywhere. Those who are against the people of God, they are everywhere. They gather against the people of God. And their purpose is with one thing, to kill, steal, and destroy. That's all they want to do. That's their sole focus, and they'll do it however they have to do it. But we can be encouraged. We don't need to be discouraged. We simply need to be faithful. We need to be faithful. We need to promises. But God also gives us a precept. We need to be faithful. We need to be encouraged. We need to keep moving forward in those battles that God is going to put before us, that the enemy is going to put before us, knowing that our enemy will eventually be vanquished. The battle's already won. We've already talked about that. We're already victors if we're in Christ. We've already won the battle. Christ offers us peace. He offers us rest now. But man... Man, oh man, it's just a foreshadowing of the peace and the rest that we're going to be offered in the future. That glorious day. That glorious day. But again, if you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, you're not ready for that glorious day. You're not ready for the return of Jesus. So my prayer to you is this. That you cry out to God. You cry out to God and let God know that you know that you're a sinner and there's nothing that you can do about it. You want to be saved. You want to turn. You want to repent from your sins and turn to God. And then you too, you too can join the rest of us with that perfect peace and that perfect rest on that glorious day that Jesus returns. Let's pray. Thanks again for listening today. We hope the word preached today would be used by God mightily as you go about your week. Again, if you would like more information about our church or would like more digital content, please feel free to check us out on the web at southsidenp.org. Have a blessed day and may God grant you grace this week to grow more into the likeness of Jesus.